You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. All right, hello everyone, and welcome back to the Grace Saves All podcast. Today, I'm happy to welcome to the podcast, Keith Giles, author of a number of books about Jesus, Jesus Unexpected, Jesus Untangled, Jesus Unbound, Jesus Undefeated, and Jesus Unveiled. And the book that we're going to be talking about today is Jesus Undefeated, Condemning the False Doctrine of Eternal Torment. So welcome, Keith Giles, to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much, David. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. So, Keith, let's just kind of start with your story a little bit. Did you always believe that all would be saved in Christ? Uh, or tell us something about your journey. Yeah, well, no, I did not uh, always believe that. I was raised a good Southern Baptist, even licensed and ordained uh, as a Southern Baptist in my 20s. Wow. And, um, and taught, um, you know, both both formally and informally, Um I was also in a Christian band when I was in college, and so we were very evangelistic. And, and and I I stood up quite often in front of young people, you know, at some of our concerts, and and said things like, um, "Every human soul is eternal. The only question is where you will spend eternity, and all this stuff." Of course, later on, I figured out there's not a single verse of scripture that suggests that a human soul is eternal or not, um, in and of itself, and all this stuff. It was just sort of ridiculous, but. Um, you know, it took me a while to get to this place where I, I was able to look again, to kind of take a fresh look at this idea, this doctrine of, um, mm-hmm. of hell, what we call hell. Um, and it was, it was a journey. I did not even, even, even when I first started looking at it, I did not immediately go straight to the doctrine of, um, universal reconciliation. Um, I kind of, I kind of went through all three. Right, so there are three views uh, of, of Christian the Christian right. doctrines of eternal torment. I, I mean, of hell. Eternal torment is one. Uh, right. Annihilation is the other, and reconciliation is the third. And and initially, it was a shock just to find that out. I mean, that alone, that piece of information by itself was probably what set me on the course. You know. Um, because just fine. How did you find that out? Was it was it a book that you read or a conversation or? Yeah, you know what? So there's a guy named Steve Gregg. I don't know if you know who Steve Gregg is. Yeah. So he does. Yeah, a, I recommend I recommend Steve Gregg's book in in the recommended read. He does an outstanding job of yes. of putting all that out there. Yeah. So yeah, he's got a great book. I think it's called All You Want to Know About Hell. But um, I know him. I, I I got to know him when I lived in Southern California. He visited our house church a couple of times. Um, even to this day, he's someone who's been very responsive. Like I, I'll shoot him emails and ask him questions and he's very gracious to give me his take on things. So, um, I listened to it. He has a, he has a syndicated radio show. It's only on certain Christian, uh, stations around the country. But anyway, I was listening to him one day to his radio program and, um, he kind of just dropped that bomb that, oh, by the way, there's always been three historically Christian views of hell from the earliest days. And here's what they are. And then I think he also provided the quote from the um, new Werner Herzog encyclopedia, which 
talk, which mentions that and even talks about how there were, um, so sort of early Christian schools of thought, there were sort of schools centered in different cities. And um, so he kind of breaks it down mm-hmm. how, you know, uh, Rome was the sort of theological home of the uh, the teaching of eternal torment and annihilation. I don't remember what it was, Ephesus or something. And then, um, and then there were four other cities that were, uh, that held the taught and held the view of universal reconciliation. So then that other, then that detail was also shocking because then it made me realize that, okay, of the three views, the majority view was a, was universal reconciliation. The two views in the minority were, uh, you know, eternal torment and annihilation. So that little detail, Steve Gregg was the first one to kind of just blow my mind with that information. And so then I started looking into the other two views. And I think I probably initially just didn't think universal reconciliation. I didn't take it seriously because I kind of just put it in the category of, I didn't really understand it. You know, it's like Ali Ali oxen free. It doesn't sound right. So I looked at annihilation Uh and, um, and I think I even say in my book, because in my book, I, I outline all three views. Um, I respect anyone that holds the view of annihilation you know, on the grounds of scriptural support, because at least there's a whole lot more scriptural support, uh, at least on, uh, at first blush, for annihilation than there is for eternal torment. Eternal torment, there's just... Yeah, there's a lot of... Yeah, there's Nothing. a there's a lot of talk about destruction. There's yeah. a lot of talk uh, about yeah. destruction in the yeah. New Testament, and yeah. it just sort of it just sort of comes down to what do you think destruction actually leads to? Do you think destruction leads to non-existence, or do you think destruction leads to restoration? And that's that's where there you can make arguments for both of those. Yes, yes. And so initially, I I kind of landed in annihilation because I thought, well, you know, there's a lot of talk, like you said, like we, uh, a lot of talk about perishing and dying and, and dying and perishing just means you're dead. doesn't mean you're going to continue to persist for eternity in, in constant, you know, constant torment. So, um, but, but after, soon after that, I mean, to be really honest, I think what really helped me turn the corner on universal reconciliation and made me take it more seriously, uh, was I read Brad Jerzak's book, um, her gates will never be shut. And that was the book that really gave me the hope that, oh my gosh, maybe God is better than we think. Maybe, maybe mm-hmm. Jesus isn't finished blowing our minds with just how loving and merciful and good and kind uh, he really is. And so yeah, t- yeah, tell yeah, tell then, the people who are listening about her gates will never be shut. Uh, what is that title about, and and what was it that that was in there that helped you? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think to be honest, I when I when I was reading the book, um, well, the title "Her Gates Will Never Be Shut" is from uh, it's a direct quote from the Book of Revelation, and I believe it's Revelation twenty where it's describing, um, it's basically the end of Revelation. So it's at the end of, after all of this, you know, uh, apocalyptic destruction and and, uh, and uh, Christ overcoming uh, the nations that have opposed him. Uh, it gives us this picture of the new Jerusalem. And it makes this very important, it makes some very uh, specific observations in Revelation. One of them is that this city, the new Jerusalem, has gates that are never shut. 
It says her gates yeah. will never be shut. And um, so that's where the title comes from. And in, in the book, you know, he, he kind of, he really focuses in on that picture of New Jerusalem and points out these very powerful things that no one had ever shown me before. I had never seen this before. But the idea that number one, um, you know, in the inside the city is Christ on his throne and all the saints, all, all those who have followed him faithfully, they're, they're inside the city. And so far that tracks with what my expectation is, right? Right. Save, save people, good people on the inside. And of course, on the outside of the city are all the, you know, the evildoers, the, the nations who have opposed uh, Christ yeah. and his kingdom. But so we have that picture. But then it, again, those details. Number one, the gates are never shut. Huh. That's interesting. So the gates are never, never closed. It's forever open. Right. Right. Uh, that's number one. Number two, it tells us that flowing from the throne of Christ is this river of living water. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then on growing on the either side of that river are these trees. And it says specifically that the leaves of those trees are for the healing of the nations. Now, who are the nations? The people outside the wall. That's who's outside the wall. Right. The nations, the whole book. And if we're fall, yeah, and if we're fault, yeah, and if we're following Revelation up to that point, we thought they were all thrown into the lake of fire. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. And we'll get back to that in a second because that seems to be like the final story, but it's not the final story, yeah. right? After that, there's this picture of New Jerusalem. Christ is the king in the center. The gates are never shut. Rivers of living water. Leaves that are for the healing of the people that opposed him who are outside the gates of the city. Right. And then you have this amazing voice that calls out, is anyone thirsty? Now, who would be thirsty, I wonder? <laughs> who are the people yeah. that are thirsty? The people outside the gates, right? Who just gone through this yeah. lake of fire, whatever that was. And um, it's this free invitation. Are you thirsty? Come and drink freely from the waters of life. And when you, when you come in and you drink from those waters of life, you're going to probably notice these trees and you're going to notice these leaves. And you know what those leaves are for? They only exist for you. They're to heal you. Mm -hmm. And it's such a beautiful, and that's how Revelation ends. Right. And the invitation, and the invitation is from who? Who's it come from? From Christ, right? Well, the spirit and the bride. Yeah, the spirit right? and the bride. Yes. The spirit and the bride. So it's 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 even it's even more than just the Christ. It's it's the it's the the people who are inside. Yes. Issuing the invitation too. Yes, it come on. Yeah. Drink freely. It's beautiful. So it's like everybody on the inside wants everybody on the outside to come in through the gates, which are never shut. Which will never be shut. That's right. Yeah, that, that is such a beautiful picture. And and I remember reading that book on, uh, at the time I was, I used to take the train back and forth to work. And um, I was reading that book on the train. And I was, when I got to that part of the book, I was wiping away tears. I, you know, I was like, I can't be crying like this on the train. But uh, it was just mm -hmm. such a beautiful, hopeful a picture, an amazing picture of, of the heart of the Father and the love of Christ that I'd never, ever seen before. And that's, I think in that moment is when I said, I think I need to research this universal reconciliation thing a little bit more seriously. <laughs> and um, and yeah. so then I did. I started doing that. And um, I had a few other people that kind of helped me along that line as well. And um, yeah, and then I, then I reached the conclusion, which is what I outline in the book, number one, of the three views, Eternal Torment has zero evidence. It's the worst of all three views. It has no leg to stand on, in my opinion. 
from Old or New Testament scriptures. Um, and, and really, I really do believe the testimony of the New Testament and even of the early Christian church was that, yes, this is God's plan, that he is going to make all things new. And that is what he's going to do. And so, and again, I think there's a lot of evidence. For one that. of the things, one of the things that was confusing to me when I first started, I didn't grow up going to church, but when I first started reading the uh, New Testament, was Jesus was talking about this sinful and corrupt generation. And these, you got to be careful about these leaders. And at first, I didn't know what to, you know, what are they doing? Are they telling people to go see bad movies, or are they? I mean, what? What is it? The what is the bad thing that they are doing? I mean, it seemed like they may have been a little overzealous about applying the laws, but um, but then I began to when I when I began to understand that what Jesus was saying was that that there's an essential violence to the way that you're practicing your religion, the way you treat other people, and you seem to think that violence is the solution, and actually, violence is going to lead you to destruction. And I, I guess, you know, if you don't know anything and you're reading the Bible, at least when I was growing up, you think the New Testament is just talking about heaven and hell. Right. But then I learned that there was this whole context of a looming destruction of Jerusalem that actually took place in 70 AD. And that a lot of Jesus language about judgment and destruction all of a sudden made a whole lot more sense once you could fit it into that context. And I was impressed with the way that you you start out your book with Jesus making, with kind of a dramatic depiction of Jesus warning the people of his day about a looming judgment against Jerusalem. So I thought that was interesting that you chose to to start with Jesus making that, that declaration and setting the whole book kind of in that historical context. Right. Now, see, that, that's, that's true, but there, there's actually, there's a, little, there's a little twist there, and maybe you didn't notice it. But um, I do start off the chapter with a prophet speaking to a, a crowd of people, and he's warning them of their, they're in danger of the fires of Gehenna. But it's actually Jeremiah. Oh, okay. It's the Jeremiah. Oh, it's the Jeremiah, yeah. which is interesting because Jesus yeah. and Jeremiah have so much in common there. But that's my point. I mean, I kind of yeah. wanted to do that bait and switch. I wanted you to read it thinking, oh, this must be Jesus. And then go, oh, by the way, this was Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the one who, who used this exact same language right. to warn the people in Jerusalem of uh, using this metaphor of Gehenna, the fires of Gehenna to warn them about, about a destruction that was coming, but it was accomplished when the invading armies came and, you know, the Babylonians came and, and sacked the city. So, but that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus is doing the exact same thing. And so yeah. some of the key things I think to, and I point this out in the book, some of the key things I think Christians need to keep in mind. Number one, the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, doesn't breathe a word about eternal torment. So number one, that should make you stop and think. How could it be that God's plan from the beginning was to torture in, in everlasting fire people that don't believe in him? And he just forgot to mention that for like 6,000 years. <laughs> huh. You think yeah. that would, he would have said something, right? Now Jesus shows up and he uses, you know, you know I heard this all the time. I, I even preach this, right? No one preaches more about hell than Jesus. Well, no, <laughs> what he's what Jesus is doing when he uses these phrases like 
where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. When Every time Jesus is using those kinds of phrases, by the way, he's quoting Old Testament uh, prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Amos, and in every case, but, but, but I just told you, right? Those Old Testament uh, prophets never breathe the word about eternal torment, yet they use those for same phrases that Jesus used. So they weren't talking about where anybody went after they were dead. They were What they were doing was using this thing called apocalyptic hyperbole. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He, he borrows the same phrases. And he's also talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, the same way Jeremiah was. But, um, and again, I talk about this in the book as well. I give a lot of examples of all those same ideas, right? Where the, the stars fall from the sky and the sun doesn't give its light and, you know, all these like seemingly horrible end of the world type, um, you know, statements that, that are made. They're in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Jesus copies them and uses them when he's warning them about AD 70 that's coming. Um, he's talking about the very same thing they are. And and in the Old Testament, when they used those those uh, that apocalyptic hyperbole, you know, it was fulfilled in the destruction of Edom or Egypt or Babylon or Jerusalem. And in, in Jesus' case, it was fulfilled in AD 70 when the Romans surrounded the city, destroyed the temple, brought an end of the age. Now, that's not an end of the world. That's the end of the age. Uh, the end of the although Jewish it sometimes age. gets translated that way. Yeah. In some yeah, it's the end of the age. Yes, it is transla- translated into the world, but it actually is the end of the age, which is a very, very different thing. Um, yeah, but so once you know those things, once you understand those details, then you realize that, oh, okay, um, Jesus really isn't talking about what happens to anybody after they're dead. He's using the same apocalyptic hyperbole to describe a destruction that's coming if people don't sort of change the path that they're on. Like you said, they were on a path of violence, of violent resistance to the Romans. They wanted to overthrow the Romans and, and establish the Jewish kingdom again. That's what they were looking for a Messiah to, to do. That's what they were hoping Jesus was going to do. And instead he shows right. up, no, we're not doing that. I have a different path. And if you follow my path, it will lead to peace and to life. If you reject the path to peace and to life, you're you're already on a path that if you don't turn around is going to lead to your ultimate destruction. And sadly, that is what happened. Now, one of the things you talk about, I think is interesting. And this is one of the things I learned in, in seminary was that by the time you get to the new Testament, the, the world kind of the intellectual and the thought world around the Jewish people has lots of different ideas from different cultures that are kind of all mixed together. So you know, there were some ideas about judgment and eternal suffering that were just kind of in the milieu of, of the time period. And there were some folks sort of in the Jewish world that were starting to pick up some of those ideas. But then there was also this older prophetic tradition. And you you do a good job in that book of talking, in your book, of talking about how you, you sort of have to make a decision of which background you're going to interpret it, how you're going to interpret Jesus? Which of those backgrounds? And I thought you did a good book, on, a good job in the book on that. Could you say some more about that? Yeah. Well, so you, one of the um, one of the questions I think that you people might have when it comes to this t- topic of hell is like, okay, well, if this if this doctrine of eternal torment never shows up in the Old Testament scriptures, the the, the prophets never mention this ever, 
And then supposedly Jesus shows up and, and, and what we're told is that now all of a sudden Jesus is the one introducing these ideas. Um, but where did the ideas come from, right? So we know historically, as you said, um, the doctrine of eternal torment shows up in Judaism historically um, in what's known as the intertestamental period. So it's the period of time between the closing of the Jewish canon and the coming of Christ. And um, during that time, mostly Egyptian sources, um, some of these ideas of, of judgment and torment and, and uh, people dying and going to this place of endless tor torture, uh, it comes from, again, pagan sources, Egyptian sources, and it creeps into Judaism. Now, what's fascinating is it's not Jesus who introduces these ideas. Uh, it actually is uh, the Pharisees. That was a shocking thing. was like, wait a second. <laughs> so, so the Pharisees were in mm -hmm. favor of this idea of God punishing people for eternity if they, if they weren't faithful to him. And, and so now if you know that the Pharisees were some of the ones that were promoting this non-biblical idea, it's not, it's not coming from the Hebrew scriptures, doesn't come from the prophets. Um, it comes from these pagan sources. And yet the Pharisees are in favor of this idea, this picture of God. Does it make sense that Jesus would be agreeing with the Pharisees? He didn't seem to really take their side on almost anything. In fact, a lot of what Jesus seems to be doing is correcting uh, some of their mis, uh, misunderstandings mm -hmm. about who God is and what God is like. Uh, in fact, I would say that almost every interaction Jesus is having with the Pharisees is correcting their wrong view of who God is and what God is like. Uh, he wants he wants to, to show them that God is a God of mercy, a God of compassion, that he brings rain on the just and the unjust, um, which, by the way, is a direct contradiction of what Moses says. Uh, so, so, you know, Jesus is very, very much challenges that this idea of God as this angry, wrathful, vengeful God. Um, and so, yeah, that, that mm -hmm. once, you, once you realize that, I think it also weakens some of this, these arguments and these ideas that it's Jesus uh, who's in favor of this doctrine. He's, he's actually not. He's, he's very much opposed to that idea. Yeah, it helped me once I began to sort of see Jesus as reprising the prophetic tradition of Jeremiah. Yes. And and how and how just how much in common the two of them the two of them had and and once I was able to set his prophetic uh warnings in the in the context is interesting you talked about um you know how you came to your views. I did a uh, when I was in I did a doctor of ministry and I did a paper doctor ministry program, and it touched on the different views of hell. And so one of the views of hell I looked at was the eternal conscious torment view. And in the internal conscious torment view, the, the, this, this guy was arguing from the 15th chapter of Luke, that if you look, the, uh, the sheep and the, uh, and the coin and the sun are all said to be in a state of destruction, apolumai in the Greek. But if you'll notice, he said, even though they're in this state of destruction, they continue to exist. Because the, the coin is destroyed, lost, but it exists. The son is destroyed, lost, but he exists, even said to be dead, but he exists. And the sheep is destroyed, but is still alive somewhere, you know, somewhere out there. So his argument was, just because you're in a state of destruction doesn't mean you don't exist anymore. Of course, he was using that argument to argue for eternal conscious torment. But then what that said to me was, wait a second, I could also use that same argument to say, Yes, a person could be thrown into destruction, 
and continue to exist. Being destroyed doesn't mean not existing anymore. It just means being separated from where you're supposed to be. But once you're restored to where you're supposed to be, then you're not destroyed anymore. So it's kind of funny. It was actually an argument from eternal, the eternal torment from a guy arguing for eternal torment that's, that said, wait a second, destruction doesn't mean non-existence. You're just existing in a state of destruction from which I think there can be, it looks like, recovery. Because yeah. everything gets recovered in that 15th chapter of uh, in that 15th chapter of Luke. So it's just interesting, you know, how once you your perspective of things, your paradigm shifts, how you start to see, hey, you can start to see everything differently. Yeah, you know, and the, the other point, the thing is, the point of those those three parables that Jesus tells, the the point is that you know, the the coin and the sheep and the son are not condemned. I mean, in other words, um, if you think of it in the parable, right? So the person who is lost is, or the people that are that are you know identified as either the son or the coin or the sheep. Um, but it's God is God is God's posture in all three of those parables is He's the one who is seeking, and and treasuring, and right. what belongs, and restoring. So yeah. that's his, He's not He's not the one throwing the coin away. He's not the one kicking the 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 sheep down the down you know, down the you know right. the mountain. It, he's the one seeking and and searching and restoring. That's what He's doing. And so again, I, I think yeah, you're, we can't miss the point of those parables. That and I think actually those are probably the three most powerful parables. Certainly, the prodigal son by itself. If Jesus only had told one parable, that's the one. Yeah, that's the, everything. Yeah, pretty it, much. It There's so. And you much. talk about and you talk about that 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 comes up in your book is the question of who is a child of God. Yes. And and I think that's an important question because if you see that that you're a child of God by grace, that that's your given identity, that that's not something you have to earn. Yes. Well, then you sort of live one way. But if you think that that's something that you have to earn and that if you don't earn it or get it the right way, then you'll be rejected. Well, then you kind of live in an, you kind of live in another way. That's right. And you talk about that in your in your book, Sam. I wonder if you could elaborate on sure. that. Sure. No, I think see for me personally, that this was honest, it was an honest struggle. I wrestled with this a lot. Um, and probably I wrestled more with that question than even the doctrine of reconciliation itself. Was sort of this idea of, okay, well, who is in Christ? Because again, so much of my training was you're either in Christ or you're not. And if you're in Christ, good things happen. You're not in Christ, bad things happen, right? And um, so the question of who is in Christ and who isn't. Um, and the question of who is a son or a child of God and who isn't, um, I slowly started to make a shift. And again, it was not easy. It, it was a long, long wrestle. But I, I do try to talk about it in the book about some of the things that convinced me. But one of the one of the verses I think in Scripture that helped convince me of this idea that we're, we are all children of God, we are all sons and daughters of God. Um, there's, there's several, but the one I think that's, that speaks most specifically to not just our identity as children of God, but also addresses this idea of, um, the way God reacts to us. Like, in other words, does God react to us primarily, um, is God a torturer? Is God a destroyer? Or is God one who, who restores and heals, right? So in mm -hmm. Hebrews chapter 12, 
And it's a, by the way, this is a very well-known verse. Most Christians who study the Bible know this verse pretty, probably almost by heart. Yeah. But I, I noticed some things in, in Hebrews 12, starting in verse 7, that I'd never noticed before. So it says, um, verse 7, Hebrews 12, 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, huh, wait a second. God disciplines disciplines his children and everyone is disciplined. Then I guess everyone is a that's son or daughter, right? And that's kind of like right there. He just, yeah. does little, you know, God, God disciplines his children and everyone is disciplined. Okay, I guess we're all his children. But then let's keep going. He says, moreover, we all have had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? And isn't again, isn't God the father of every spirit, every soul, right? He's not only Christians, everyone. Right. He's, God is the father of everyone. Um, he says, our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but here it is. But God disciplines us for our good. Why? That we may share in his holiness. It's like this is the purpose when God, quote unquote, disciplines us. It's because he loves us. It's because he's a father. And the discipline is intended not to torture and not to destroy, but that we might share in his holiness. Again, this speaks to us being restored and transformed into the image of Christ. And so I think this is that, that that for me was a key, one of the key verses that helped me yeah. wrap my brain around this idea. Of course, you also have lots of verses where, um, you know, Paul Paul speaks to idol worshiping pagans in, in Athens and tells them, by the oh, way. Oh, I love that speech, that speech that he gives in Acts chapter 17, where he goes yeah. to all these pagans. You think he's going to say to them, you think he's going to say, hey, you pagans. You're far from God. You're not God's child. You're not God's children. God right. is high and holy and far removed from you. And there's a giant gulf separating you and you can't get across it. Now, but I'm going to tell you about a way that you can, because if you don't get across this thing, you're going to hell forever. You right. would think that was the speech. I mean, right. if there was ever a time to give the perfect, <laughs> to give the perfect evangelical sermon. You know, the, the, uh, I think I call that worst even that Paul's Paul's talk there is worst evangelical sermon ever. Yes, it is. Because, because what does he say to them? <laughs> well, yeah, it, it, you're right. I, I actually would I would challenge every megaphone, you know, kind of preacher who stands out, you know, with the megaphone and tells everyone they're going to burn in hell. I, I challenge you next time you go out with your megaphone, just and only preach what Paul preaches to the idol worshiping pagans in Athens, because um, that would be amazing. Yeah, but what he tells them yeah. is the opposite of what you said. He tells these <laughs> idol worshiping pagans. You are the children of God. God is your father and he loves you. Yeah, even your yeah, even your own pagan, even your own poets know this. Yes, even your own poets. Like this is this is, should be easy. Yes, this is a common knowledge, everybody. <laughs> Everyone knows this. And um, this God is your father, he's your creator, he's your father, he's the one in whom we all live and move and have our being. And he emphasizes how this God cares for them and blesses them with all these blessings. Why? Because he's hoping that they would turn to him and know him. So, wow, where's the hellfire? Where's the condemnation? Where's right. The and there's another part about that. When I was, when I, was, I didn't grow up going to church, but every now and then I got this diagram, you know, where they would show the, 
you know, I was on one side and there was this, and there was this abyss and God was on the other side and the cross, but, but so God was holy. And, and because God was holy, it was explained to me, God was far, far away because God cannot be near anything that's unclean or sinful. So God is far, far, far away. And the, the way they explained it to me was I was born in sin. And so I was sinful. So God could not be, could not be next to me, could not be close to me. But then I remember reading this, you know, coming across this speech. And as part of it, Paul tells these pagans, you're living and moving and having your being in God. And God is not far from any one of you. And it was like, wow, did yeah. Paul just say that? Because <laughs> that wasn't the diagram that I got. That's exactly right. And you know what? Honestly, it is frustrating because honestly, not only does Paul contradict that, Jesus does too. Again, Jesus Jesus challenges this idea that we have we have embraced now as if it is the gospel. This idea that God is so holy, he cannot be in the presence of sin. This this is the reason why the Pharisees were upset at Jesus. Why do you hang out with sinners? Why do you eat with sinners? Because in their minds, God was too holy to be in the presence of sinners and because God was, if you want to be like God, well then that's what God does. And then therefore if you want to be like God, then you also should be, I can't be around sinners the same way God can't, right? Right. Jesus separation. Yes. And Jesus challenges this idea completely. In fact, I think it's one of the, the biggest things we miss in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we typically take the verse in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus makes the statement, be perfect or be holy. It really is holy, not perfect, but be holy even as God is holy. And if you just take that sentence by itself, we hear that as be perfectly sinless as God is perfectly sinless. That is not what he's saying. If you read the entire thing, read the verses before that, it's where Jesus is saying that if you want to be like your heavenly father, you'll bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you. If they slap you on the left, turn, turn the other cheek. Um, you know, uh, in other words, overcome evil with good, love your enemies. And in as other, your father in heaven does. Yes. Why should you do that? Because that's what your father in heaven does. He brings rain on the just and on the unjust. And then he says, be holy as your heavenly father is holy. And how is he holy? The way he just told us, because he's not too holy to be in the presence of sinners. He's not too holy to bless people that are sinful. He loves them. He blesses all of them. And so Jesus redefines the holiness of God for us. What does it mean? And therefore, if you if your picture of God is that he's not too holy, because again, Jesus says, if you want to know what the Father is like, look at me. And when, what do you if you look at Jesus, what do you see? He's hanging out with sinners. Exactly. Right. So Jesus' life and message and ministry completely contradicts this idea that God is too holy to be in the presence of sin. And by the way, you can't find a verse in the Bible that that says that God is too holy to be in the presence of sin. I think there's like two verses in the Old Testament that sort of say that. But if you just keep reading a couple extra verses, the, the prophet will say that, well, you know, like, uh, I think what's the one in, um, is it Hosea? There's a verse in Hosea that basically says, God, you're too holy to be in blah, blah, oh, blah. Yeah. But then a couple of verses later, Hosea says, so why do you? In other words, why do you look upon sin? Why do you? remain in the presence of, of sinners. So it's sort of like a complaint against God and, and like, I, God, I don't understand how you are this way. It's not saying God isn't this way. So, you know, we have to, we, we really definitely have to go back 
and let Jesus, especially, and Paul uh, redefine our view of who God really is. That, that, mm-hmm. that is not a God who is uh, too holy to be in, in, in the presence of, of those who are sinful. And, and there's just this, um, you know, we focus so much on sin anyway, right? Like when, when we see Jesus, how he reacts to sin, he just forgives it always. Uh, I don't even think people even ask him for forgiveness. Most of the time he just is forgiving them automatically. Um, you know, this whole idea of love keeps no record of wrongs that, um, you know, Paul says in second Corinthians, God was in Christ, not counting our sins against us, but reconciling the world to himself. So God's reaction to our sin is I forgave it. I've forgotten it. It's as far as he's from the West. I don't count it against you. Um, I'm not keeping a record of wrongs. You know, Jesus is, is Jesus or is Jesus not? the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because we tend to live in a church environment that basically behold the Lamb of God who keeps reminding you of your sins constantly. <laughs> well, one of the things uh, that, that sometimes um, you know people think is that the whole point of religion is to keep us in check, is to keep us from going crazy and doing bad things. Right. And if, and if we start saying that, you know what, do all the bad things you want in this world, in the world to come, uh, God will find, God will work with you and God will find a way, you know, to get you home. So, uh, man, if you start, if you start telling this, I mean, why will people go to church? Why will people want to follow Jesus? They'll just go crazy. And, uh, so isn't this kind of a, you know, I mean, why, why should I follow Jesus right now? If I could have all the fun I want to have and do whatever I want to, and then what I'll just pay, I'll just pay later on after right. I die. Right. Well, that is a, that is a very common question. And I do address that in the book because that's the, one of the first things people ask is like, well, Hey, if everybody makes it, then why be a Christian? Why follow Jesus? Right. And, and first of all, the people that are asking me that question are usually Christians. And uh-huh. that breaks my heart. Why is a Christian asking me, why should I follow Jesus? If, if it's not about getting, not about escaping hell. Like, do you really know Jesus? Have you spent time with Jesus? Like, because Jesus is amazing. He's awesome. He's the source of life and joy and peace and everything. Like, he is, he's everything we need and desire in the world and in the universe. You know, our, our whole lives are, we were created to be in connection with God through Christ. So, um, yeah, it's not just because it's not like a shotgun wedding. It shouldn't be like, oh, I'm only here because I don't want to burn in hell forever. Oh, I don't. Oh, wait, that's not that's not on the table. Well, I'm out of here then. Well, if that's the only reason we're connected to God through Christ, then I, I wonder, are, are we really even truly connected to Christ? Um, you know, again, it's not something. If we have this transactional approach. And, and and I'll be honest, that's kind of the way I came into the faith as, a, as like a nine-year-old, you know, right. at a church. It was sort of the, if you don't want to burn in hell forever, raise your hand. Oh, I see that hand. Okay, repeat this prayer, ding. You're going to go yeah. to heaven. But, you know, then, then the more I get to know Christ in my personal life, it's sort of like, I just, I, I know that I'm loved and I love, I love Christ and, and I'm not here because of fear, right? Uh, it's not, it shouldn't be about fear. It should be about this connection we have with God. And so it also reminds me of a quote, uh, Dallas Willard has a quote, and I, th- I think it's something along the lines of like, the way that you know that you really understand that you can do nothing, uh, you know, to, to, to receive salvation or whatever, 
is, is the first thing you do when you find out there's nothing you can do. And that's a long, in other words, if you really get it, if you really grasp the goodness of God, the love of God, the grace of God for you, um, if you really, really get it, really, really deep, like in your bones, get it. Mm-hmm. And the first thing you do is to rejoice and to celebrate. And like, you know, like, like Peter says to Jesus, where can we go? You have the words of life. I yeah. mean, um, it's kind of like when I was in my process, when I first realized that, you know, I was thinking, well, salvation is a lot of grace. And then I thought salvation is, you know, it's, it's, it's just about all grace. And then I finally got to the point where, you know what? I think it's, I think it's all grace. I think salvation is, I think this whole thing is grace. Uh, and then I had to decide if I thought it was limited or not. Right. And if it's all grace, then love wouldn't limit it. So it's all grace and it's unlimited. Right. Uh, and then once I got there, um, one of the most interesting things that happened once I started, you know, it's interesting once you start seeking what, what you start, what you start finding out. And, it, and I don't know, maybe I wasn't looking for it before, but once I started looking into this, I was amazed to find out how many early church fathers yes. had believed this. And some of the most amazing quotes about the love and the mercy of God come from early church fathers. But the, where, where I grew, kind of the world where I grew up, they never quoted early church fathers. They just quoted people from the Protestant Reformation. I mean, right. you just heard, you know, it was like, who cares about the early church fathers? Right. It was the only, the only, the only, you know, I grew up in a world that was kind of dominated by one form of Protestantism or another, and Catholics were looked, you know, right. Catholics were really sketchy. Uh, because, you know, they didn't believe the Bible the right way or they had the Pope or whatever. But we're mm-hmm. just, you know, we're Protestants and we learned about all the, we got everything straightened out with the Protestant Reformation. So they would just quote Protestant reformers all the time. Right. But then I found out that there was a whole world of these guys that were much earlier in, in Macrina. Macrina is a woman. There were, there were these people that were that spoke in the sort of the, the original Greek and, the, and the, that worldview. And there were all these incredibly beautiful things that they had said, and I didn't know about any of it. Right. And that really, that really kind of blew my mind. And that's one of the, you have so many great quotes. You start a lot of your chapters with quotes from folks in the early church. Then you have an appendix that's got just a whole great collection of, and so that, that's kind of interesting to me that here you are, you grow up in the Southern Baptist church, (laughs) and then you write this book and it's filled with quotes from early church folks that you would have never learned about in the, in that Southern Baptist setting. That's exactly right. That's right. Yeah. So that is the thing, you know, again, when you study church history and you realized so many of the early church fathers, but like the first 400 years uh, of church history, the majority of Christians, I mean, we're talking the, the people that sat on the councils that decided, you know, uh, the doctrines of the Trinity or things like this were, were led by, Universalist Christians that were very outspokenly universalist Christians. I mean, can you imagine today if, if all the Christians got together and said, let's get a bunch of Christian leaders together to decide something, you know, for the church. Let's let's have a guy leading it who's a universalist. What? Well, the reason why they did that was, number one, most of them were universalists. And B, it wasn't a big deal to them. It wasn't like this major thing that it is for us today where it's this, well, if you yeah. don't believe this, you're a heretic kind of a thing. 
Um, but yeah, there I, I do have a, a lot of quotes in the book, um, like Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus, Basil the Great, uh, Theophilus of Antioch. Uh, there's so many. And, um, and then I also have an appendix where I have 76 Bible verses that support patristic yeah. universalism. Because again, you know, most we, I, we were told. Let's say that patristic, you said patristic universalism. For those who may not be familiar with that term, what is patristic universalism? Right. Patristic just means fathers. So it's the early church fathers, uh, again, for those first 400 years of church history. And um Patristic universalism again—it's—it's it's the uh, the view of the early church fathers that God would reconcile all things to Himself, and you know, and, and we haven't got into this yet, but I, I just real quickly will say, you know, again, th- there were these three views, right? And and um, and all three views involve this sort of metaphor of fire. Okay, so uh, yeah. again, to, to clarify, universal reconciliation, patristic universalism. Uh, as it was taught by the early church fathers, was not this, again, this Ali Ali oxen free thing where, oh, if you die apart from Christ, oh, come on in, everything's great. No, in fact, it's the opposite. It's not that nobody goes through the fire. It's that everyone goes through the fire. Everybody, Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, you, me, you know, your grandma, everybody. Yeah, everyone is salted with fire. Yes, as Jesus said, everything will be salted with fire. Uh, as Paul talks about, you know, he uses this metaphor of how, uh, you know, we will all go through the through the testing of the fire. If 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 um, you know, wood, hay, and stubble will be burned up, and it will reveal gold and silver and precious stones. But he says, even if everything is burned up, meaning there is nothing in you that's good at all. There's nothing. It says, and yet they will still be saved, even as those who pass through the fire, like. So understand this fire, it's a metaphor, let's say. It's, let's be honest, it's not a literal fire. It's a metaphorical fire. But the, again, the purpose of the fire is not torture, not destruction, because that's not who God is. The purpose of the fire is, as we read in Hebrews, to, to um, restore and purify to, so that we can share in the holiness of God. So this is the, that, that's what the view is, so that everyone passes through the fire um, and, and that, but that fire is a purification, is a restoration and a transformation process. One of the things I noticed about that too is, um, you know, you read through, uh, and Jesus gives a warning and he talks about uh, the people who are judged being thrown in the, uh, in the blazing furnace. And you're just like, oh my gosh, you know, that just kind of shuts you down right there. But then it says that, but then they're thrown in the blazing furnace where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, if it was a literal blazing furnace, there's no weeping and gnashing of teeth in a literal blazing furnace. You're just, you know, yeah. there's like, there's like brief screaming and then silence. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well then, but then in other places, he talks about being cast into outer darkness, which produces weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not just like you're thrown out there and you think, man, it is dark. I keep bumping into stuff. No, it's something, something, there's something about the darkness that that exposes something right. that you, that you makes you, ironically, it's being in the darkness that makes you see something. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, but the fire also does the same thing. It, it makes you see something or experience something or feel something that maybe you don't want to. And God doesn't do this because God enjoys it. No, but it's, it's a necessary, it, it's a necessary thing. Yes. Yeah. And, and again, it's this idea that, 
God's ultimate character and God's ultimate heart is that, again, how many times is it repeated in the scripture? God is not willing that any should perish, but that all right, should, should experience eternal life. And that is his desire. That is his intention. And he has the power to accomplish it. He has a plan to restore all things to himself. And, um, and that is what he's going to do. And, and again, it's, it's not, this is not obscure. It's not like, well, there's a, like one little verse here and one little verse there. There, once you look at the verse, that's why it's 76 verses from the Bible that, it, that, yeah. that promote this idea of what we're talking about, universal reconciliation, the idea that God intends that all would be saved through Christ. And, you know, there, there are some shocking ones, like, you know, when Paul says that as an Adam all die, uh, and, and as in Christ, right. all will be made alive. Um, wow. <laughs> like that, that's, a, that's a powerful verse. There's another verse that says, um, yeah, we, we, we rely on, oh, what's the verse? I think it's in First Peter. Um, oh, God, I just blanked it. You know, I could look it up, but it, yeah, there, there's all these verses though about yeah, uh, go ahead. he's the savior. I'm sorry. There it is. He's the savior of all men, but especially those who believe he's the savior of all men. Right. But especially those who believe what <laughs> that's a weird way to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's lots of verses. Yeah. Like there's several verses like that, that, yeah, that once you start looking, once you start looking at them, I remember that I was when people start talking to me about the Bible, they would always quote that passage from Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right. But then I learned that if you follow that argument all the way through, it ends up in Romans 11, uh, 32. Yep. Where it says, oh yeah, well, and the reason that God has consigned all to disobedience is so that he might have mercy upon all. That's exactly right. And see, that's that right there is another key thing uh, that, that we miss is that we, we don't understand how to read the book of Romans. The book of Romans, most of the book, or at least half of the book up until uh, chapter 11, as you said, is written in something called prosopopoeia. And it's a, an argument, argumentation style that Paul employs. And what he didn't invent it, a lot of, a lot of uh, first century uh, philosophers and, and, and argumentarians uh, use this style. And it's basically a way of having a mock debate with a- an Yeah, you're kind of arguing with yourself a little bit. Yes. So in, in Romans, most of the Romans 1 through 11, is Paul having a mock debate with a teacher of the law. Let's call him Saul. And so Saul, the teacher of the law, is debating Paul, the apostle of grace, going back and forth in these arguments, right? And so some of the things you're reading in Romans, um, where you could go, oh, look right here, Paul says this in Romans. Yeah, keep reading. He's a, he's a, that's probably not really, that's probably Saul, the teacher of the law, that he's, that he's using in argumentation there. But a little bit later, he's going to turn that back around on itself and say, no, that can't be true. And here's why. And again, like you said, the entire thing culminates in Romans 11 with this statement. God has consigned all to judgment so that he can show mercy to everyone. And the very next verses after that are Paul having a little victory touchdown end zone dance of yeah, grace is the wisdom of God who can know him and it's, right. Why does he suddenly stop and celebrate after that statement? Because that was the entire point he was trying to make from Romans one till Romans eleven. And once he, yeah, I've often that, thought, you know, how yeah. different how different would things be? Maybe if if the book of Romans had ended there, because yes. after that point, really, Paul just goes on and he says, "Okay, well, now let me make some practical remarks about how to live." Yes. 
you know, and it becomes it it it, it sort of it's like the theological argument kind of ends there. And then you go, the rest of Romans is more of like a practical living kind of kind of argument. But I remember it's like when you realize the end of the theological argument, is it Romans 11.32? It really is like, oh, okay, so then now I can fit this whole thing together. Right. And, and here's the thing, too, uh, though, about that. You're right. So Romans 11, he makes that point. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have, her- have mercy on them all. Then, then he has this huge exaltation. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. I will searchable his judgment and his past tracing. You know, who's you know, beyond tracing out? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? You know, on and on. To him be the glory and glory forever. Amen. And then he goes straight into Romans 12. Therefore, understand the right. therefore. Because we know that this is who God is. This actually goes back to the question, why follow Jesus if all are going to be saved? Paul just finished making the point that all are going to be saved, that this is God's plan. He gives glory to God. Now he says, therefore, because we know this, because we know that this is who God is. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So in other words, our response to a God of incredible mercy and love should be to submit our whole lives to him in in this living worship to God of, of thanksgiving. And grace it like, God, you're so good. You're so great. In other words, this is the appropriate response to the revelation that God loves everyone and is going to show mercy to everyone. That's what we should be doing. Mm-hmm. And that, that's Paul's whole point. And I agree with you. I, it almost, if, if it we had just kind of stopped there and wrapped it up, and then maybe people could see it better. But because it isn't. Yeah, could see it better. It's kind of buried. Yes. We have people that major on Paul. And, and when they get to Romans, they just sort of only look at the arguments, really, that most of those arguments they're looking at are the ones made by Saul, the teacher of the law, and they they don't really read the rest of it that Paul's trying to make the point. And it, so it becomes this very legalistic document. Nobody would be more upset about that than Paul. Because uh, like yeah. it's like, you're not getting the point. You're not understanding what I'm trying to say. One of the things that that is that becomes a challenge with all of this is, how do we, um, or for people who have been used to basically, you know, Christianity is the good news that we can escape the eternal torments of hell through, through coming to Christ. And so that's the good news is we get to escape the eternal torment. Okay. But if we take eternal torment out of the picture, then how do we proclaim, you know, how is the gospel how is the gospel proclaimed? So I guess I might ask the question then: how how do you how do you proclaim the gospel? What do you think that the that the that the good news is? Well, I mean, I think that whole question of the gospel. What is the gospel? Um, yeah, it's not it's not the version we've been given. Um, I honestly, I go back to Jesus. I, I would turn to the Gospels: Matthew, Mark, mm-hmm. Luke, John. Jesus tells us the gospel. He, he, in fact, he starts his ministry in the Sermon on the Mount proclaiming good news. The God, that's what the gospel is, right? Um, repent, mm-hmm. metanoia, which just means think differently. Change your way of thinking. And he says this, the good news is this. The kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is at hand. And what that simply means is this idea that the presence of God, our access to God, our connection with God is available to us right now. In other words, everything that we think we're waiting to experience 
uh, after we die. Well, because we're Christians, we're going to die and go to heaven, which is where God is. And we'll get to be in the presence of God forever and ever. And we'll get to enjoy his presence and all that. Jesus proclaims, oh, no, you don't have to wait till after you're dead to experience that. That starts right now. You can know God in that deep, intimate way right this second. This is the entire point of the new covenant. The whole point of the new covenant that Jesus makes with us is, and again, it's in Jeremiah 31. It's repeated. Jesus uh, you know, affirms it. It's in Hebrews. The, the, the new covenant is this. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And no one will say to his neighbor, know the Lord, because you can all know me, every one of you directly. You know, there is no mediator between God and man anymore except for Christ. So the, the good news is this, that we have absolute access to a, to a loving God, the creator of the universe, who, whose love for us is higher and wider and longer and deeper than we can possibly imagine, that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God, not angels, not demons, not height, not depth, not the future, not the past, um, that God is love. And we are loved by God. We are by all, not only that, we're made in the image of God. God is love and we were made in his image. So we are beloved. We are made in the image of love. And so this is the this is the message consistent with Jesus and Paul and the New Testament, this, this idea of a, a God who loves us more than we can imagine, a connection with God. We don't have to strive for it. We don't have to jump through any hoops. We just are loved. And again, the problem I think with that message for a lot of people is that it's it's really hard to build a, a church around that or a religion around that, right? Religion wants us to wants to give us hoops to yeah, jump. us versus them. Yes, there's there has to yeah, be us versus yeah. them, and yes, yep, that's and right. A feeling that I have done something to earn this, and that I I did this, and now I get to go to heaven, and now you don't. Yeah, I'm right, and you're wrong, and yeah, all that I'm in, and you're out. Yes, all of that, and that to me is that that's the stuff that Jesus came to uh, get rid of. The sad thing is we have, you know, men have taken pieces of the message and use it to construct a version of something that, that yeah. will work as a religion. Uh, but it's really difficult to run a, run a religion on the idea that you're automatically loved by God. You always will be. Nothing will change that. What, when, one of the things that's been interesting thinking about, you know, as we've gone through this in our own country, this sort of where we have, we have sort of veered towards nationalism and yeah. authoritarianism is, you know, just how disheartening it has been. And you can, we can sort of imagine what would happen if our, if our nation, you know, careered into, you know, careened in some kind of totalitarian, uh, totalitarian direction and how horrible that would be. And then I think, okay, but Jesus lived in a world, a totalitarian world where his people were subjugated, where they're, there was all of that. There was no democracy. There was no representation. Right. I mean, it was stone cold, you know, empire and tyranny. And right in the middle of this, he says, hey, everybody, I've got some good news. Right. The kingdom of God is here. Yeah. <laughs> Let me show you about this. It's a completely different way of living. It's nonviolent. You yep. don't, you, there's no, you don't have to, you don't have to do violence. Matter of fact, you don't, you can love everybody. Matter of fact, you can forgive everybody. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like his whole idea was that he was going to make, they were going to be disciples and he was going to teach them this way of living in the kingdom of God on earth as it was in heaven. And this was the good news that we can do this right now. We can do this together. Let me show yeah. you how much power this unleashes. Yes. And that was kind of the original thing. 
that was like the, that was the original thing. And I remember when I discovered, it's like, wait a second, that was the original thing. How did it ever become the thing that I heard about? You know, when I was in junior high school and somebody told me that if I didn't accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior and I died, and, and, and if I hadn't done it by the time I died tonight, that if I died, you know, this God would uh, torment me in hell forever and ever. And oh, by the way, he loves you, <laughs> you <Right>. know, <laughs> and and basically, and you can read the Bible if you want to, but I can tell you right now, that's exactly what the Bible says, because at our church, we believe the Bible and our pr- preachers have studied it and and we know everything that's in the Bible and we can show this to you in the Bible. And this is Christianity. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. how did that how did that happen? And then I learned that what happened was, well, that wasn't the, it started out really with the good news of Jesus. And it was a nonviolent, loving and welcoming community. But then it went along in a certain period of time. The empire couldn't beat it. And so it it adopted it. And then as we went through time, there was a church father named Augustine who had this. He was in this school. He had he had grown up in this school, this Roman school of eternal torment. And that's that was the doctrine that he that he that he thought was the best. And the Roman the Roman as the Roman empires led the Roman led the church. They sort of enshrined that eternal torment doctrine into the church. And then the Protestant Reformation came along and it didn't really challenge any of that. It just sort of rearranged the deck chairs. Yep. And and then we inherited all of that. But we didn't know we had inherited this Augustinian Roman imperial violent Christianity. But it was it was presented to us as if it was the only thing that had ever been. That's exactly right. And then and when you study, that's one of the been one of the most beautiful things about studying you know, pre-Augustinian, pre-Constantinian, uh, early church fathers, first century, second century uh, Christians and their writings, because I think they they had a view of Jesus and an understanding of the gospel that wasn't clouded by uh, an entanglement with the Roman Empire. It wasn't entangled with um, power structures, like a church that had been wedded to the state um, that was sort of addicted now to carrying the, wielding the sword and the cross. Um, but only carrying the cross, understanding the cross was only about your, you dying, no one else, you know, you're not, the cross kills you, it doesn't kill anyone else. Um, Yeah. When you, when you study the early Christians, pre-Constantine, pre-Augustine, you do, you start to see these beautiful pictures of, man, they really understood who Jesus was. They really understood this message that Jesus had. uh, And they took it very, very seriously, this idea of loving your enemies and blessing those who curse you, which is why, you know, before Constantine, we have no evidence of Christians using violence um, against other Christians or against, you know, anybody, against the, those that are trying to persecute them and, yeah. and martyr them and burn them at the stake and skin them alive and all these horrible things. Um, but it's a much different story post-Constantine and post-Augustine. Now you see Christians carrying swords, burning people at the stake. Uh, and, and actually now it's Christians killing other Christians. It's even worse. It's not it's not unbelieving pagans killing Christians. Now we have Christians killing other Christians because, well, you don't agree with this doctrine and you don't believe that or this. Um, it's pretty yeah, and it's that heresy, you know. Then, then yeah. you're, yeah, and if you're condemned of a heresy, well, then well, I guess we'll just do to heretics what God does to God's right? enemies. And if God burns them up, then I guess we should burn them up too. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly right. 
Well, so I think that we're kind of in a new, to me, this time that we are in is every bit as dynamic as the Protestant Reformation. I think, I think kind of more dynamic because we've been, they had the printing press, but now we've got the, uh, now we've got the internet podcasting, yep. the ability to have these conversations and for people to have access to all of this information. So I just want to say, I appreciate, um, the, you know, you're, you're writing a whole series of books that really, uh, that really all talk about Jesus and maybe how we haven't, maybe how we need to look at him again, uh, through a different, you know, through a different lens. And so I'd recommend, uh, just look up, uh, Keith Giles. Uh, you've also, you're also in a, a podcast that you do with some, some other guys and, uh, you want to tell, tell folks, uh, maybe, a, I don't know, say maybe a little bit more about the books you've written and the podcast yeah. that you're doing so people can find out uh, more about you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, David. Yeah, so I, I have been writing. I didn't intend to, but I ended up writing this series of books, uh, the Jesus Un series, and um, the the sixth book in the series is coming out in March twenty third. Be out very soon. Uh, it's called Jesus Unforsaken, substituting divine wrath with unrelenting love. So that that book is looking at penal substitutionary atonement theory and the cross, and and a better way I think to look at and to think about the crucifixion of Jesus and the atonement. Um, but yeah, and I have one more book to finish up. Hopefully it'll be out later this year uh, or early next year. And then I'm going to wrap up that series completely. That'll be Jesus um, Unarmed, looking at uh, Jesus as a nonviolent uh, Messiah. And um, but yeah, so the, the book will be available. The new book, Jesus Unforsaken, will be available. All my books are available on Amazon, on Kindle, uh, audiobook as well. I do a podcast with a couple other guys. Um, well, uh, two guys and a girl. <laughs> so uh, it's called Heretic Happy Hour. And we've, we've been doing it now for a couple of years and it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's not for everybody. There is some language. So I'll warn you ahead of time. If you, if you can't. Yeah, it's it. kind of a, it, it's a, if, if, if you think, oh, I don't want to listen to podcasts because Christians, you know, they don't ever go there and they're also, they're all, you know, all buttoned up and they don't talk like regular people talk. Well, on your podcast, people pretty much talk like regular. It's very unvarnished. That's to right. me. To me, it's the kind of it's the kind of way that people talk when they're not being recorded, but you're <laughs> recording it. That's right. That's a great way of putting it. That's exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so we have a lot of fun doing that. And that's on you know you can find that podcast anywhere. I'm actually starting a new podcast, a second one. So I'm not. I'm still going to remain on the Heretic Happy Hour, but I'm also starting a new podcast with a group called Peace Catalyst. So it'll be called the Peace Catalyst Podcast. And that podcast um, is talking about helping Christians become peacemakers and ambassadors of reconciliation. Um, so that that's a lot of fun too. And that's something close to my heart. So that, that should be launching also in March. Well, cool. Well, I really appreciate your journey. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I, I, I grew up kind of outside of the church and, and I, I sort of had run-ins with evangelicalism, but then uh, I found my way to what they call mainline Protestantism. Mm -hmm. You know, so I never, I never had much of an engagement with evangelicalism. And the strange thing has been for me is that as I, once I really started wanting to get into uh, Christian universalism and find out more about it, I just kept running into evangelicals or people who were sort of formed in evangelicalism. And that was really surprising to me, like how many people that I'm running into that are wanting to write about Christian universalism have evangelical backgrounds. Why do you think that is? Just real quickly. Well, I think because, um, kind of going back to what you said a minute ago, I mean, because we have the internet now 
And now all of a sudden you can find out that, oh, wait a minute, there's, there's more than one way to look at that verse. Oh, wait, there's other views that go back to the first century, second century of Christianity that look at, you know, hell differently or think about inspiration of scripture differently or think about the end times differently or the cross or things like that. Like, um, I think it's just people have much more accessibility now to other ways, new ways, better ways of thinking about Jesus and, and Christianity. And they're just simply finding those new uh, ways of looking at Jesus and of thinking about Christianity much more compelling. Uh, I don't yeah. blame them, right? The, the, there is a better gospel. There is a better version of the, what, we've been, what we've been handed. And I think it's inevitable. It's just, there's no way of stopping it. I think more and more uh, people are going to begin to to see these things and learn these things and decide, you know what? I don't want this angry, wrathful, vengeful, uh, yeah. almost schizophrenic God who, like you said, you know, I love you, but I'll torture you in hell forever. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I tell people, you know, this, this thing that I'm doing, it's not something that I'm making happen. It's something that's happening. That's right. And it's just really cool. And, you know, I didn't write the book. I didn't write my book on it because uh, there's nothing out there for people to read on it. I wrote it because I wanted to be a part of the conversation and just, you know, here's my way of, here's my way of saying it. And I want to do a podcast on it just to get a chance to, to visit with people and to get these conversations out there, you know, and I think it's helpful for people to get get a chance to listen into these conversations and and find out uh, more about it. So I'm happy to recommend uh, you and, 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 and your book. And if you want to listen to some, some people that are, I don't know, saying it like people really talk, you know, yeah. when the, when the, when the, when the cameras aren't rolling and the microphones aren't turned on, well, check out the Heretic Happy Hour because they talk about all of it. Yeah. <laughs> they talk about all of it over there. And if you want, want to find uh, about peacemaking, it's the peace. What's it called again? The new podcast? It's called Peace Catalyst Podcast. Peace, Peace Catalyst Podcast. Well, Keith, I'm, this is the first time I've gotten to talk to you. And I'm glad to I'm glad to make your acquaintance, and uh, it's been fun visiting with you. I've gotten to know you through your books and your other podcast work. So, God bless you. I'm looking forward to seeing you know what more interesting things you have to you have to share with us. Thank you so much, David. God bless, man. All right. Hopefully, we'll talk we'll talk later on. All right. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David, or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.